Welcome to The Business Grind, where we give you an inside perspective on what it takes to start, build, and run a successful business. Here are your hosts, Danny Shaw and Sean Michael Wellington. All right. Hello to everyone in podcast land today. Thanks for joining us, Sean. How are you feeling? Feeling good this week and ready for another interview. It's been a while since we had a guest, so it'll be good a little change of pace. Indeed, indeed. All right, so we have Mr. Maurice Cherry on the show today. Uh, I feel like I need a, me uh, take a deep breath to speak on everything that <laughs> Maurice does. But, uh, you know, just for the uninitiated, uh, Maurice is a designer, strategist, and podcaster uh, located in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, digital creator, he's well known for, you know, his Revision uh, Path podcast, award-winning podcast, actually, which is the first podcast to be added to the Smithsonian National Museum of African American History and Culture, um, amongst many other projects that Maurice have been, has been included in and has spearheaded all, throughout his career, which we'll get into today. Uh, Maurice, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, thanks for joining. I, I tried to keep it short, but I know I didn't probably didn't even do as much <laughs> justice to everything that you have touched or been involved in. So if you don't mind, maybe just giving a little bit more color and context to all that you do. No, you're you're good. Um, I I um, the creative director and principal at my own studio called Lunch. Mm-hmm. Um, that's something that I've founded back in 2008. Um, I also have a production company that I co-own called Cultural Algorithms. Mm. Um, Lunch, the studio that that most people know of, that's where Revision Path sort of comes out of. It's one of the projects that I do through my studio. And then Cultural Algorithms, we started roughly in about, I think, 2019, 2020, like right around the beginning of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And um, it's a it is a company that I co-own with my friend Tori Hargrove, who works at Meta. And uh, we are, I think, going to be close to releasing our first production from Cultural Algorithms pretty soon. And with all these projects and initiatives and things that you have done over the years, I guess we can just kind of jump right into it, right? Like, how did you get started, <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> and just well, to I'm... piggyback off of that, sorry to cut you off, Maurice, but I want to know kind of how did you get started, but maybe finish off with like, what's your main source of income right now out of all the things you do? Oh, well, I'm unemployed now, so my main source of income <laughs> is from the government. Um, no, that's I'm not, real. That's I'm real. not, not like, it's real. I'm not laughing because it's like, <laughs> wow, ha. But um, I no, think- I just got I just got laid off um, a month ago. And so I'm currently kind of in the job market looking, but until then, until I find something, you know, right? living no. on unemployment. No, that, 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 oh man, that's real because this show is about showing <laughs> the real behind <laughs> the entrepreneur experience and the grind behind the scenes, right? It's not all glitz and glam and everyone isn't, you know, giving advice on how to take your LLC to the next level in 20 seconds or less. So this is real, this is real stuff. So definitely appreciate out the gate, just coming with the real, right? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's where, I mean, my main source of income is, but I mean, I have the podcast, so we have revenue through the show, through our job board, as well Mm -hmm. as through sponsorships and advertising. Um, And, you know, I've got savings and stuff like that, but Mm -hmm. um, in terms of regular income that's coming in, that's, uh, that's pretty much it. Oh, wait, no, I also, I work part-time for a publishing company called A Book Apart. I mm-hmm. work as a development editor. Oh, okay. So I do get paid from that as well. But, you know, it's, 
I usually try to have more than one stream of income in general, whether I have a nine to five or not. Mm -hmm. um, but the main thing right now uh, is unemployment. And you also mentioned how you're monetizing the podcast. I mean, I don't want to jump around too much. Maybe you are <laughs> with such a, an eclectic person, but I, I just want to deep dive on that a little bit. Like, you know, I feel like a lot of people are struggling to monetize the podcast. It's a, it's a flashy thing now where people want to jump and do it. But you know, not very many people know the monetization strategy. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Maybe before we dive into some of the other stuff, how you, you know, establish yourself in a structure where you can monetize from it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I've had my show now for almost 10 years. So part of the ability to, to monetize it is just based on that longevity. But I'd say we got our first sponsor around, I think I was maybe about two or three years into the show before I got my first sponsor, and that was a, a corporate sponsor. It was MailChimp. Mm. And what I essentially did, uh, or what you have to do when you're trying to court particular sponsors, if you're not part of like a network or something like that, is you have to build like a profitable case around your show. And so for me, what that involved was doing a survey of our audience to get a sense of their demographic information, you know, age, income, location, et cetera. Um, so people can kind of know this is the profile that they're buying into for advertising. Mm -hmm. uh, but also to get a sense of like how many people are listening to episodes, how many people are downloading, et cetera. I would say contrary to popular belief, you don't have to have a super popular show to be monetized. And when I say super popular, I would say, I, I feel like right now with a lot of other podcasts, people will tell you is that you can't really start monetizing until you roughly have about 10,000 downloads per episode, uh, which is nice to have, don't get me wrong, but you can have a thousand and still be good if you're hitting a specific niche that an advertiser is looking to reach. So part of the the thing with monetizing is you know finding the right advertiser. Mm -hmm. um, I think some people right out the gate will want certain really big companies and those big companies may not wanna deal with a small podcast. They wanna do something that, they wanna sponsor something that's gonna be worth their investment in it because they're not going to give a small investment if they were to give an investment. Uh, just to kind of give you an example with MailChimp, uh, we came in for our first sponsorship roughly at about $3,000 for the year, which is not a lot in mm -hmm. hindsight. Mm -hmm. um, at the time when we got that, which was I think about 2015, that was more than enough to pay for my editor and to pay for other things for the show um, to keep it at the level that it was. But then later on, for example, we got Facebook as a sponsor. And then Facebook is like, well, we won't sponsor for anything less than 25,000. So did I need 25,000? No. Did they <laughs> give me 25,000? Yes. Did I take 25,000? Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> so it, it depends on, it depends on the, the, the advertiser and what you have to offer for them through your show. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's a really big part about monetizing. I think uh, the the general sort of advice, like I said, you'll hear about is that you have to have a certain thousand number of downloads per episode or whatever. And that's not the case. It really is who is the audience that your particular podcast reaches and can you illustrate that audience to a potential sponsor? And so with me, that came with doing that survey, putting all that information into a kit along with some like web statistics, some really basic packages like this is how much it is for one episode. This is how much it is if you want to sponsor for the year. This is how much if you just want a social media mention, et cetera. Like basically give them options to choose from uh, and then just take it from there. I mean, the mm. worst they can say is no. 
-hmm. But somebody eventually will say yes, as, as long as you keep doing your show. I will say, don't do your show just to get money. Mm -hmm. Like, there are a lot of people I know that want to start a podcast just because they want to try to tap into some money. Like, mm -hmm. I'd say the tools now have made it easier than ever to start a show. Like, you can start one on Spotify using Anchor or something and, like, tie it into some type of a monetization model. But will it be enough for you to really transform your show or you know honestly will it even be enough for you to go out and eat dinner with probably not mm -hmm. probably not so it's about just kind of approaching your show and making it into a marketable thing for companies to want to buy into now did someone inform you on what makes it marketable like you seem very knowledgeable and it was that just you know through trial and error of doing it or did you have someone you know i know there's agents out there in entertainment right someone comes to you and says hey you could be or maybe just in some sort of expert who came to you and said hey you could make this amount of money through sponsors if you set up your podcast to do this 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 and capture this audience or you just learn it you know through trial and error well, that's a good question. Um, so nobody taught me, I'll say that. I do have a master's in telecommunications and network management. So I do have like the business sense of mm -hmm. how to like run a business, look at profit and loss statements and all that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, not that they necessarily taught me marketing a podcast <laughs> in grad school, <laughs> but they teach you about just like marketing in general, like it's supply and demand essentially. Um, before I did Revision Path, there was another project that I had that I did called the Black Weblog Awards. And I did that from 2004 until I sold it in 2011. Um, and I'd say that was probably where I really first learned about how to put together a profitable um, sort of kit or something or a profitable project for people to want to sponsor because that was something that a lot of people were interested in and wanted to be a part of. And I honestly, at the time, did not know, like, okay, you want to sponsor us? Uh, we'll take, you know, $100. And not really knowing what that meant or what I would put it towards, but it's as I was in grad school and started learning about this business and how businesses are run, that's how it, it uh, that's sort of how it came to me, I guess. Hmm. Maurice, you did mention some items that I would like to circle on in the, in the back in the in a second but i would like us to just kind of touch base on how you started in the first place like how did you come upon the journey from designer and and business person uh, along the way and still wearing all these hats at the same time uh oh where to start um i mean i i will we'll start in 2005 we'll start there so that was when i got my first like professional design job. I was working for the state of Georgia mm -hmm. as an electronic media specialist. Prior to that, I was basically just doing a lot of customer service jobs. I was working at Auto Trader. I worked at the opera for like a day doing telemarketing. Like I, I had like little jobs here and there, nothing really stable mm -hmm. and nothing in design because to kind of date this, this was like between 2003, 2005. Mm -hmm. um, not really a lot of jobs for designers mm. um, and not really, I would say, a whole lot of programs or ways to learn stuff. Like I was basically learning how to design, I'm using air quotes here, mm -hmm. off of like a broken copy of Photoshop that I downloaded from LimeWire or something and like books from Barnes and Noble that I would go to Barnes and Noble and just like crack the book open and take pictures of them mm. um, because I couldn't afford the book. So that was how I kind of taught myself design and 
did enough little like I wouldn't even call them portfolio pieces to be honest but mm -hmm. I just did enough playing around with design enough to build a portfolio which allowed me to uh, get this job that I had in 2005 as an electronic media specialist so working there with the state of Georgia I mean I did a little bit of everything I was um, doing web design graphic design I did you know those big roadside marquees that you see mm -hmm. I would design those um, things like that and also to completely date myself I was still using macromedia software back then this is prior mm -hmm. to Adobe purchasing macromedia like I put together CDs using director <laughs> we chopped up websites using <laughs> fireworks like mm -hmm. um, this is a long time ago a lot of people might not might not even remember those those programs I don't know fireworks you I, got you lost me on that I one. remember <laughs> I, I remember I remember coming in the industry on the end of fireworks and I and the end of macromedia like those were sunsetting uh, yeah, we yeah, were yeah. using Macromedia Dreamweaver at work, mm -hmm. um, and we were using Fireworks. <laughs> I remember Dreamweaver. Yep. Okay, okay, nice. Um, nice. So that's kind of how I got started, just doing mm -hmm. work for the state of Georgia. Did that for roughly about a year and a half, and then from there I went to WebMD for a short period of time as a web services developer, um, and that was doing more Photoshop, like, I guess template work is the best way to put it. Basically, we would edit these PD PSDs and then export them to HTML and like then the other we there was like this cube farm and essentially the designers worked on the PSDs and then we exported them and then we tossed them over the wall to the other folks who would actually like put it into this um, this content management system called .NET Nuke. Uh, this is this is a long time ago. <laughs> um, so <laughs> I did that for six months as a contract and then from there started at AT&T as a junior designer, worked my way up to being a senior designer. Um, and then in 2008, I quit that job and started my studio in uh, November 2008, the week that Obama got elected. Nice, nice. That, yeah, so that was kind of my start, I would say. I mean, that's at least when I started the studio, mm -hmm. it was 2008. Um, and you know, and I'm I'm papering over this by saying I did it for nine years. I mean, the studio itself is still open. I just don't take design clients anymore. It's more so the umbrella mm -hmm. for my creative projects. But I do still do some consulting and things um, under the umbrella of the studio. But I'm no longer doing like design work under that. I see. Okay, so I think that's perfect because I feel like you kind of touched on the struggle for a lot of creatives who try to transition into business. It's no longer taking design clients, no longer taking video clients, whatever your creative field is, no longer taking the actual clients and doing the work yourself, but consulting and or hiring people uh, to kind of adopt your method and fill in the gaps for you so you're not on the ground doing all the work. So is that something you experienced or uh, like how did that work? You not taking design clients anymore? Yeah, I mean, when I started my studio, it was just me. Um, uh, and I'd say probably for the first three to four years, it was just myself. And then I hired a virtual assistant. Um, and then it was her and I for about a year. And then that's when I started to actually build a team out. And this was all, this was an all remote team um, from designers, mostly from the Philippines, but we had a couple that were in the US. Um, and I had a team of nine designers and developers. So I would basically serve as like the principal creative director. I'm talking with the clients. Uh, my virtual assistant is the one that would set up any meetings or would kind of be the project coordinator sometimes also. 
and then we had uh, the designers and developers that were actually designing and doing the actual like design work. So I would say roughly uh, around 2014, 2015 was when I personally transitioned out of doing the hands-on design and being more of like the, the studio owner that's overseeing what other people are doing. So when the end of 2017 came along, I was kind of winding the studio down because the market was just changing. Uh, when I first started, you know, this was 2008, uh, WordPress was still like, I think getting its footing um, and people were still kind of trying to get into content management systems as a way to make websites and to administer websites. And so for the early parts of the studio work, we did a lot of bespoke WordPress themes. We did MailChimp templates, email marketing, stuff like that. But as the market went on and matured, what you started to see were the growth of these kind of like template-based websites where you could build things on your own, like Squarespace or Wix or something like that. And so because the market was changing that way, we were seeing a decline in the number of people that wanted, you know, a custom WordPress theme. If anything, they wanted like a custom Squarespace theme. And I'm like, yeah, we don't really do that. Um, and so as the market was changing, that's when I was like, all right, I feel like the part that I want to do with design is sort of waning. But granted, we were still able to do other sorts of services like consulting and stuff like that. So it just made sense to wind down the design part. And also design, as you all both know, changes pretty, pretty rapidly. Mm -hmm. um, when I first started doing design in the 90s, it was all tables. When I worked at AT&T, that's when we were that's when web design was switching over from tables to CSS. Mm -hmm. And then I would say right around the time that I stopped designing in my studio, it was switching over from CSS to like Flexbox and like all the other <laughs> sort of mm -hmm. like um, frameworks framework. and stuff that you see now, you know, like CSS, less frameworks, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, and so I was sort of like getting out of the game a little bit at that point in terms of hands-on design work. All right, right. Um, what would you say was probably, you know, what was, what led to the decision from saying, okay, employee, but now I'm going to start, you know, I opened up my own studio. I started creating my own podcast. Like create from just saying I'm working to I'm going to start doing my own endeavors now and creating my own business and stuff like that. Was there, you know? I don't know. If, I don't know if there was like a specific point. I mm -hmm. mean, I think with anyone that that with anyone that has their own business, uh, you quickly realize that you can't do everything yourself. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you, especially when it comes to like the administrative portion, cause that takes you away from doing the actual design work or that you're, you know, working on or development work or what have you. And so you try to supplement that by bringing someone in that can do the admin part. So you can focus more on the actual building of things. But if you're really trying to like grow and scale um, and you think about what it is that you want to do in your business, you try to find other sorts of byproducts that you can make through your studio. That's not just like the hands-on work of building a thing. Right. Right. So also during the time when I had my studio, like I taught classes, I made classes. Um, you know, I did consulting, I did podcasting cause I had the time to do it since I, at this point had, you know, started to bring on a team mm -hmm. that left me with more time to then focus on, well, what are some other, sort of byproducts from the studio that we can create, that we can make, and we can administer that will still kind of pull back into the studio in terms of revenue. But yeah, I wouldn't say there was like a specific 
vantage point, I think anyone, if they've worked in their business for at least, I would say two to three years, you start to realize that you need to expand. Like you need to bring someone on so you can honestly just multiply the time that you have mm -hmm. to get things done. Um, and when you have that extra time, then you can think, oh, well, you know what? I could do a podcast. I could, you know, I could, I could teach a course. I, there's mm -hmm. other things you see that you can do on top of the work that you're already doing because you've now brought on someone else to handle that work. And like the clients are paying for the actual project itself. So as long as the clients know about it, like it's, it's fine. Right. Right. And that process of bringing on somebody, um, what is that like, you know, cause no one's going to do the work the way you do it. Right. So there's kind of like a, a period of accepting that this is not going to be maybe exactly how I do it, but as long as the customer satisfied, maybe. So like, what was that transition like? And how do you find people that, uh, fit the vision that you've established for your business already? Well, I think anytime that you bring on someone for your business, whether it's you as an entrepreneur bringing on someone, or if you're an employer bringing on a new person, like every person you hire is a risk. Um, it's not just a risk for whether or not they can do the work to the level that you hope that they can do that they've maybe expressed during an interview or something, but also like, are they going to be a good person just to work with? You know, so many places talk about culture fit. That's really important at small places because it's like you and this other person. And if you don't like working with the other person, it's like that makes your job even harder. And then you're thinking, well, why am I making this job that I've made for myself so hard? You know, mm -hmm. um, a lot of it is just intuition and trust. I mean, I think now certainly prior to, you know, back when I was hiring for people for my studio, there's a lot of folks out here that can do design. Like there's a lot of people that can do the actual hands-on work, but are they people that you like to work with? Are they people that you can see yourself working with day in, day out? You know, that's important for my studio. I mean, I honestly, I put up a one ad. Mm -hmm. I did it not on, was it on Craigslist? I'm pretty sure I had one on Craigslist, but then there's also like certain design job boards like I think Coraflot has a job board. Mm -hmm. AIGA has a job board. Some of these cost money. Some of them are more are, are free, actually. Some of them are. Um, and the reason that I would do it there is because I know that's the audience that I'm trying to reach. If I put it on like Monster or something like that, you'd get everybody just coming out of the woodwork. You know, a more specialized job board is what I use to try to find people. And then you interview them. Um, I would do a paid assignment for people like a small, just like a small thing that they would have to do on a project, like maybe take this, you know, Photoshop design and mm -hmm. slice it up into a page. And I want to see what the CSS and the HTML and everything look like, stuff like that, you know? Mm -hmm. um, I, I mean, I do that. I can't really say if, if this is what other folks do, because everyone's <laughs> going to have their own right. protocol for who they decide they want to work with and the kinds of tasks that they'll be doing. But um, then you just sort of go from there. I mean, with everyone that I worked with, they were freelance. So everyone was getting like a, a 1099 or anything. So I want to be clear about, I didn't do anything that had to relate to like W2s and insurance and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Everything is legal and on the up and up, but everybody that worked for the company was a freelancer. Uh, they were a freelance contractor. I would like to uh, circle back on something you said early in the show, uh, which was you sold your uh, award show. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah like, uh, could you shed a little light on that? Like the beginnings of even creating the awards and then, you know, the growing of it and then ultimately saying, 
you know, I'm going to sell it. I think a lot of people, a lot of times people may even start a business or start something and not necessarily have an exit plan or exit strategy. They might not even be aware that I can sell this and I'm on to the next venture. You know, a lot of times they may feel like they're stuck with it for life or until it fails right? and they can't do anything with it anymore. Well, I mean, I'll be honest, I didn't have a strategy to sell. I didn't I didn't start it with an intent to sell it. But mm-hmm. as time went on, you know, and as I got older, I just was like, I don't want to do this anymore, which is is fine. I think mm-hmm. with every with every person that creates something, you have to be at some point in time willing to like walk away from it. Right. And whether or not you retain ownership after you walk away from it is completely up to you. But you realize that as you get older, you just have different uh, responsibilities, you have different, you know, just there's different things in your life that you want to devote time to. Mm-hmm. And with the the Black Weblog Awards, I sold it right around the time I turned 30. And I had spent all of my 20s working on these projects and doing all this stuff. And I was in grad school and I was like, I'm tired. <laughs> I'm tired. So I sold it like right before I turned 30. And, um, and that's why I sold it is because I was just tired of doing it. Mm-hmm. It was still popular. I mean, even after I sold it, it went on for five more years. So it was still popular. It had an in-person, uh, the, the person who I sold it to had turned it into an in-person event with like physical awards and like celebrities came. So like it went on, it lived on after me. Mm-hmm. Um, but personally, I was just like, I'm, I need a break. I'm mm-hmm. done. 2004 mm-hmm. was when I initially had the idea to start the Black Weblog Awards. Um, And I didn't really make it a reality until 2005. The reason I wanted to start it is because at the time, blogging was huge. Uh, Blogspot, Blogger, I think people were using movable type and stuff. There were, blogging was a huge thing back then. A lot of people were doing it, because again, this is pre-social media. Mm -hmm. So everybody and their mother had a blog about something and it was easy to start one up. And there were some, you know, people that had put together award ceremonies around these blogs. They would say, oh, well, we're going to do like the weblog awards and we're going to announce winners for stuff. And so I saw that there were two events like this. One was called the weblog awards. The Mm -hmm. other one was called the bloggies. And so they would do this every year. They would give out these awards. And I'd notice black people weren't being nominated, let alone winning. And I'm like, what's that about? Mm -hmm. How come we're not getting a part of this we're i know we're participating because i know a lot of people that are doing it Mm um and i think the the catalyst was seeing one of the weblog awards had a category that was like best african or middle eastern blog and everybody was white and i'm like okay that that can't be true i was like out of all the countries in africa and all the countries in the middle east you found the five white people with a blog and that's that can't be right. I don't believe that at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was the catalyst for me starting the Black Weblog Awards. Uh, the first year that I did it was uh, <laughs> the first year I did it. I just did it by email because again, this is two thousand five. The types of mechanisms that would exist, and really even the type of technology that would exist to do something like this on a grand scale, really did not exist. Like I can't stress enough how technology has really grown and changed over like the span of like 15 or 20 years. I mean, back then we were doing like CGI forms with JavaScript. There were no elaborate 
software solutions that you could just buy a subscription to, mm-hmm. to, you know, to make some of this stuff happen. You were really just cobbling together whatever you could based off of the programming language at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the first year I did all the ballots and stuff through email. That was crazy because I couldn't handle all the emails and my, my, um, not my internet service provider, but, but my web host, mm. like, banned me for a while because they're like, why are you getting so many emails? Are you a spammer? I'm like, no, 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 I'm doing this awards event and what have you. <laughs> um, so that was the first year. And then eventually, like, the second year, we ended up using this uh, this program, not this program, this, uh, this software called Wufu, built by Chris Coyer, this, like, web form mm-hmm. software. And we used that for a few years, and then eventually we had something custom-built uh, by the people behind Black Web 2.0, they uh, custom built us a solution. But it took a while to get to that point. Mm-hmm. And also the popularity of the awards really like increased every year. Like 2006, it was huge. 2007, NPR picked it up. 2008, NPR continued to pick it up. And they actually took part of the Black Weblog Awards and integrated it into one of their most popular news shows at the time called News and Notes. Farai Chidea, they introduced this bloggers roundtable, and that was made up of winners from the Black Weblog Awards. So now these people that were just bloggers now are being put on a national platform mm-hmm. where people can hear their thoughts. I'm talking like Baratunde Thurston, Lovey Jones, um, or Lovey Ajayi Jones, that's her married name now, mm-hmm. um, Afrobella, a lot of other people. Like they started to get this amplification. Right. After the, you know, after they would win an award or something like that. And I mean, we gave them to celebrities too. I think Questlove has one, Kanye has one, Tyra Banks has one, some other folks. I don't remember everybody. Mm-hmm. This is a while right. ago. Right, but right. um, but it grew every year to the point where like I was only doing it during the summer. Like that was when the awards took place. And every summer, I mean, I was hustling, mm-hmm. trying to make it work. And like I started grad school in 2006. So I was in grad school from 2006 to 2009. So I'm working full time and I'm in grad school full time and I'm doing the Black Weblog Awards. Um, And I quit my job in 2008 to start my studio. The studio allowed me more time to focus on the Black Weblog Awards. Um, And also I graduated from grad school in 2009. So I had more time, but like, also I was getting more into my studio. My studio was getting bigger and I was getting bigger clients and getting bigger projects and you know the black weblog awards as much as I love to do it was just so tiring and mm-hmm. I had a small staff at the time and it it was just it just got to the point where I needed to let it go I was like right now this is not going to grow any bigger under me mm-hmm. and I'm also tired of doing it and so I had a friend uh Gina McCauley who lives in Texas or she lived in Texas at the time and she had this really popular uh, website called What About Our Daughters that focused on like black girls. Mm-hmm. And she had created this event called Blogging While Brown, this conference that she started in 2008 uh, that she initially had in Atlanta because I worked at the Georgia World Congress Center, which I was able to get that as the venue for the first um, the first annual first. Blogging While Brown conference. Mm-hmm. So she kept that going every year and like had a venue had an audience and i was like look do you want the black web blog awards i'll sell it to you (laughs) and she bought it 
Uh, and that was, and the rest is history after that with the Black Web Blog Awards. I just, I still kind of popped in every year just to kind of give a congratulatory, uh-huh. you know, thing to the, the nominees and stuff like that. But I had washed my hands of it because by 2011, 2012, I was like, I could focus on my studio. I'm not in school. That was sort of the, the catalyst for me to start to grow the studio because I had no other projects and things that I was working on. But the idea for Revision Path was still kind of in the back of my head mm-hmm. because at this time, I'm now owning and operating a design studio. Right. And so I'm talking with designers. I'm like in the design community and I'm noticing the disparity among like black studio owners or even black designers being mentioned in any of the design media that I consume. And I was like, well, there's got to be a, a podcast or a magazine or something. Initially, Revision Path was going to start as a magazine as an online magazine. It was going to be modeled after The Great Discontent. And uh, The Great Discontent was this website that had these really great long-form interviews and these great photos. And I was like, yeah, I could probably do something similar to that. Maybe not the same quality, but certainly the same level of execution. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's kind of just how it started. It was initially going to be me and another Black designer that were going to launch it. I forget his name. He he goes by, or at least at the time he went by Zills, Z I L L Z. Okay. Um, and we were gonna start it together, and then like at the last minute he pulled out, and so then I just went ahead and launched it because at this point I had bought the domain name and started making graphics and stuff for it. So I was like, I'll just launch it myself, mm-hmm. and so that's how Revision Path ended up being born. At first, as like a an online magazine, mm-hmm. really just a blog. Um, and then roughly about, I would say, three to four months in from starting it is when I recorded the first podcast episode, which initially was never the it was never the uh, goal of Revision Path at that point to be a podcast. It was just going to be a magazine. But this person from Chicago, she had uh, read the magazine and was like, I really love it. I'm going to be in Atlanta. I was wondering if you wanted to record a podcast and I didn't have any gear. I didn't have any microphones or anything like that. I had been podcasting before. I had a history with podcasting that started back in like 2005, but I didn't have any gear or anything to record. So we just like recorded it on my phone at the time, mm. my horrible, horrible phone at the time, because <laughs> uh, it had a microphone and I could record audio. And that's how we did the first episode at a restaurant here in Atlanta. Mm. And uh, eventually I upgraded my, you know, microphone yeah. and everything but uh but that's how it started okay wow well before we talk about the podcast i just want to talk about how when you sold your awards show uh that's that's funny is that you just said hey you want to buy it and that was it right um because sean i remember when we did our book review on built to sell that's uh, exactly what i was thinking too <laughs> uh, yeah i was thinking you know that's and how many creatives start a creative venture and then when they're done with it it's just done and it just sits there and there's no like you know there's no equity built there's no right selling it for something later on to still make profit off it it's just right. like all right i was in this for four years and now it's gone mm-hmm. so you really like you know you monetized it even though you weren't working on it anymore so that's brilliant yeah 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 and i still you know was sort of associated with it throughout the year so i kind of had that i guess um social proof attached to it that Mm -hmm. people knew that i was behind it um but yeah once i sold it and she started running it i was like great i can focus on something else nice nice and uh i think i'm noticing like a theme with your ventures right like you're not 
and correct me if I'm wrong, it's not like you're necessarily uh, trying to find what's the next hot thing or a new thing. A lot of these ventures seem to come from a place of you just having an interest or passion or noticing that, you know, something that you would desire is not necessarily there and then you kind of go and do it. Is that a, a fair assessment or? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I could be someone that could look at the market and see like, oh, here's a, here's a void and I could possibly fill it. But would I be interested in it? Mm, probably not. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I still have other passion projects now that I want to do that I will get to eventually. Mm -hmm. um, it may not happen right away, but you know, there's, there's time. And certainly I think as I do more of these types of projects that just increases my like overall visibility. So when I do start these other projects, they won't necessarily start from zero. They can start at least with some level of a platform or an audience because people know that I'm capable of doing this type of project work. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I can launch it hopefully with some level of support already behind it. And I think incidentally, just based on hearing you talk and hearing how you kind of got to some of the businesses you started, even if you're not intentionally like, this is a new trend, I'm going to go jump on it. I think you just have that brain and have that mind where you recognize the trends and you're gravitating towards some of those things because you start like you're right about blogs like that was the time where all hip-hop all of them that was just a wave and mm -hmm. you decided to jump on that and create a platform that in turn was was valuable and you were able to sell that so yeah mm -hmm. and now it's funny because i mean revision path now surpasses what i've done with with the black weblog awards i think because of the general I guess, ephemeral nature of the internet. Mm -hmm. Like most of that stuff is gone. Like it's, it's gone. Like the new, the new version of the awards that started in 2011 and went on, I think there's probably still vestiges of that around somewhere maybe, but like, because the internet has moved so fast and things, you know, kind of go at such a rapid speed with the, the outpacing of technology and, and just the way that culture changes and the way that our tools are changing and growing. Like a lot of the projects I do have, a sh they seem like they have a pretty short shelf life. Like mm. you start something on the internet, hopefully it, it lives for a few years, you move on to the next thing. Like mm -hmm. that's kind of just how the web, at least right now, I feel like that's how it works. The web, or really I'd say the internet, not so much. The, well, I guess you could say the web, the web and the internet being two separate things, but it was never really meant to be an archive. Mm -hmm. It was never meant for that sort of purpose. And so, yeah, I did this great work and it might exist out there somewhere, bits and pieces of it, but you know, it, it is what it is. Either you were there or you weren't there to, <laughs> to kind of experience it. Right, right. Um, so Revision Path, right? We, I mean, I know you have a lot of other projects that and things that you have started and worked on, but uh, would you say like right now, this is like the most, I don't know, most prominent or most, uh, has it gotten you the most, yeah, I don't even know, the most recognition or opportunities? Because uh, this has been going on for a while now, right? Like, Yeah, it'll be it'll be 10 years next year. Mm -hmm. um, I would say it has. I'd say it has, yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, the thing with the Black Weblog Awards, and then I would say the reason that it, it didn't take off as much as I wanted it to, uh, two reasons. One, it was... <laughs> It was just a different time on the internet back mm -hmm, then. Like right. the, it was just a different time in general, um, and especially once uh, Obama started running for president, mm -hmm. 
it became a lot harder for me to push the Black Weblog Awards as an idea because folks were bringing up this whole thing about the uh, about the world being post-racial. Post-racial. <laughs> so if you focused on anything in one particular like ethnic or racial aspect, you were being racist. And I'm mm-hmm. like, oh, that's not I, how I, it I don't works. Think how, like, yeah, I don't how, think that's how that's that not works. That's how this works. <laughs> um, and so because of that, at least initially back then, it was hard to kind of, you know, sort of get traction for it. Right. Um, and so it never, I mean, like NPR picked it up and I think that's great, but I don't even think NPR would say like, oh yeah, we got this from the Black Weblog Awards, although they totally got it from the Black Weblog Awards, even mm-hmm. though like the show doesn't exist anymore that they were using news and notes and whatnot. Mm-hmm. But um, I say Revision Path is probably the biggest because one, we've managed to uh, connect ourselves with a lot of really big companies mm-hmm. that are in tech and mm-hmm. design. Mm-hmm. Like every major company, you know, Microsoft, Apple, whomever, we've probably had someone from their company on the show. So I have a connection. Mm-hmm. Um, and two, because it's now part of the Smithsonian's archives, right. that yeah. that opens up the show to a much larger audience uh, than I think it, it had been before. Certainly we get like a lot more students now. Mm-hmm. Like I know that Revision Path is taught in a couple of schools um, nationally and internationally but now that it's part of the smithsonian like i get student emails all the time about you know can i talk to you about this or can you can i interview you for that or something like that so it's i'm 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 getting the show now to be a part of design canon Mm -hmm. like design history so because i'm i'm pushing it towards that uh that arena I'd say it's probably the biggest thing I've done so far. Nice, nice. On a, and are all your episodes uh, archived in the museum, or is it? Not all of them. So mm. only eleven of them are archived Got it. Uh, right now, and that was a selection that they put together okay. in 2019. Um, I had been talking with them about possibly doing more, but it's a long process. Mm, uh, the pandemic has only made that a much longer process. So. Um, I don't know when or if there will be another selection of episodes in the in the museum because it takes a lot to it takes a lot to get them in there. Like just right. to kind of give you an example, um, it took me four years to get those eleven episodes in. Wow! So it's wow. not as <laughs> yeah, it's not as simple as wow. being like, here's an email. <laughs> put that in. Here's the MP3. Yeah. yeah, archive this no, MP3. It's, it's a whole it's a whole process. They have to. Um, obtain what they call museum use rights. Mm-hmm. And so for every person that I've had on the show, for example, they have to reach out to them personally, ask them about their involvement, cooperate and make sure that it uh. happened when it happened, get their permission, you know. And mm. like some people who have been on the show have passed on mm, or they no longer yeah. work in design or what have you. So like sometimes it can be a little tricky. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, yeah, it took four years uh, to get these 11 episodes in and so... Okay. If they decide to to bring more in, I hope it will be a much speedier process. But mm. <laughs> but right now, what's in there is what's in there, and I'm happy for that. No, that's that's what's up. I mean, I was wondering why I didn't get an email yet, but um, for my episode, <laughs> but not. Well, um. that's, well, the other thing is they chose the episodes. I didn't choose them. Oh, so wow. they went they went through, and at the time when they chose them, this was in. Let's see. I I first pitched it to them in 2015. Mm -hmm. They came back to me, I think, around like 20, 
17, I think. Wow. wow. And at that time, I, I was like right around 250 episodes or so. Got so it. like half of where I'm at now. Yeah. Um, and so they chose from that. And they're like, yeah, we think these episodes would be uh, great to be in the museum. And they gave their reasons why. And I was like, okay. Okay, no, good deal, good deal. So anything after episode 250 um, is, n well, that's not true. Episode 300 is in the show, is in the is in the Smithsonian. And that's only because, um, honestly, at the time, you know, Black Panther had just come out. Mm -hmm. And if anyone had visited the museum during that year, they knew how much Black Panther stuff was in the museum, like movie yeah, stuff. Like, yeah, yeah, Even if you go in the gift mm -hmm. shop and everything. Yeah. So the fact that I had the the uh someone from there from the movie itself as the 300th episode they were like oh yeah we'll take that one too nice like they just like when you go to the grocery store shopping and you're in the and you're in the checkout line and uh -huh. you just like grab a candy bar or something that's how they were they were like yeah this is what i want got it got it okay so uh if you don't mind i'm gonna switch topics just a bit because i know you know we're running um running on time a bit and don't want to rush you but I would like to talk about, you know, the writing projects, uh, the books and the things, you know, that you have worked on. Um, you, you've talked about doing an online magazine. That was the initial iteration of Revision Path. And then, um, you know, but on top of that, you have worked on books. Can you speak to that, the books that you have worked on? Yeah. So I've written some essays and, and have been interviewed and such for uh, three books. Mm -hmm. One is uh, from Andrea Pippins, and it's titled, uh, oh, I'm forgetting the title. It's We Something. Mm -hmm. You'll, yeah, I, don't, we'll, I forgot we'll, we'll the title. We'll find it I and put it in the notes. Beforehand. But one was a book by Andrea Pippins. Um, the second book was Extra Bold, which is like this, um, I think it's they're calling it like a, a feminist design manual or something like that i'm completely butchering this by the no, way we'll put it in a note um, i put we'll, okay. put we'll put the titles we'll put the because I, I didn't i can't recall the top of my head all but good, the most recent good. one um is the one that came out earlier this year in 2022 which is the black experience in design mm -hmm, and i yeah. wrote an essay there about revision path so i'm in those also just through revision path for three years we did this um I, it's like I'll call it a journal, a design literary journal called Recognize. Mm -hmm. um, and the goal of Recognize was to kind of uncover the next generation of design writers, you know, which are, in my eyes, like people of color. Mm -hmm. Like, where are they? And, you know, this is sort of built one off of the legacy of Stephen Heller. Mm -hmm. um, I won the Stephen Heller Prize back in 2018 uh, for the work that I did with Revision Path. But even now, when you look at a lot of design writers, like it's it's rare to find a black design writer. Mm -hmm. um, when you do see black design being talked about, it's usually in the realm of fashion or maybe interior design or something, but not about like web design, graphic design, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, you, you just don't find those, those design writers anywhere. Um, and so what I wanted to do was try to help cultivate that next generation of those designers through that project. So... We did it for three years. Uh, roughly what it boiled down to was people would submit for a specific theme. So we would have a different theme each year. Mm -hmm. And um, people would submit, right, you know, just submit our essays to that theme, 3,000 words or less. And then we would choose the ones that we thought were the best. We'd get them polished and ready to publish. And we would publish them. Uh, the first year we partnered with Envision. And so we had six essays that we ran 
inside their blog called, um, forget what their blog is called, but we ran them mm-hmm. <laughs> in, in, in tandem with their blog. Right. And then the second year, um, we only had four. No, we had two, my bad. We had two essays the second year and we ran those with a list apart, which is a well-known right, um, right. web magazine from mm-hmm. Jeffrey Zeldman. Right. Um, and we wanted to do it for the third year, but I think what ended up happening with the pandemic, it just kind of killed the momentum for the project. Like right. people were not interested in writing stuff. We got people that just submitted a lot of designs and I'm like, no, you have to actually write something. <laughs> um, so we just ended up kind of winding it down. I still want to bring it back one day because mm-hmm. I do think it's important to try to cultivate that next generation because even though we don't have a lot of design magazines out there you know i still think it's important for designers to be able to write and document their craft because right no one else is going to do it and even with what i do with revision path i try to impress that upon the guests not just about writing but just about document your process in some sort of way so mm-hmm. you know the future can know about what it is that you do you know right myself but this has been very um enlightening and, and fun. Sean, do you have any uh, questions or any other items you would like to ask uh, Maurice? I mean, only one thing. I mean, I just kind of want to go back to how we started and you mentioned like currently you're on unemployment and you know, you're not necessarily employed by a company. <laughs> the initial- You make the me initial, sound like I'm broke. Well, <laughs> well exactly. Exactly. I'm trying to, I'm trying to, I'm trying to, um, cause you know, I've been, I did that similarly maybe two years ago and that really set me up for things in the future. And then it was an even better situation cause you know, that was around the COVID time for the context of those listeners. So this is when we were getting Trump uh, checks as they called them. So <laughs> strategically, uh, we understand sometimes it makes sense uh, if you're, especially in the freelance world, to file for unemployment. So that's what I was trying to clarify. So if you could set that up for us, for our, uh, for the listeners who are maybe not as aware of how to take advantage of the unemployment system when you're a freelancer, let us know like how you got to that decision and how you, you know, figured out things like that in your path. I mean, I don't know how it is in other states. So like what I say, take it with a grain of salt. I live in Georgia. I mean, I was working a full-time job and paying into the state. So the unemployment money that I'm getting back is my money. Like that's the money I put into the state. It's for that purpose. So I'm getting that money back, you know, however much money they give every week. But you have to, you still have to claim it. Like you have to be actively looking for work. You have to put in, I think, at least three jobs like you have to apply for at least three jobs a week so they can see that you are actively looking for work and then every week when you claim it you have to tell them like you know no i did not refuse any work that sort of thing so it's a process in order to claim it every week that's the process in georgia i do not know if that process is the same nationwide um i'm pretty sure it varies state by state so uh but the money that i'm getting i mean it is because of money that I paid into at the places where I worked at full time. So that's my money. Got it. I mean, that makes a whole lot of sense. Exactly. Cause yeah. You know. Cause I, I think sometimes, you know, just to kind of piggyback off that, I think sometimes there can be some shame associated with like filing for public services. Like I've been on food stamps. I've been, I've, I've filed for unemployment because that's money that I've paid into the system. It's called the, it's called, I mean, it is colloquially called welfare, but it is a public support system. We pay into it with our tax dollars. So when you're unemployed and you need that, you tap into it because it's your money. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that to like push back on, on you asking the question, <laughs> but I wanna, I wanna like impress that upon people because I know 
especially when I was younger, there would be people that would be so ashamed of like even the thought of doing that. And I'm like, it's it's your money. Right, right. That money that comes out of your check for taxes doesn't just vanish into thin air. It goes into a public support system. And now that you're no longer able to pay into that, you can take advantage of that public support system until you get back on your feet. No, that is a, yeah. Thank no, you. Yeah, that's exactly that's, just, that's it. <laughs> exactly what we're looking for. Yeah. No, that's it. Yeah. That's, and and I'll I'll end it. Well, not end it, but I will also add to the note, especially when we're speaking in the realm of entrepreneurs and business owners and starting your business. You know, there's probably a lot of people that wouldn't even want to own up to that or consider that. Right. Um, right. But I mean, yeah. I, I have to be clear, like when I say that, like you still have to mm-hmm. like when, you still have to file for unemployment. Right. So it's not a given. Well, of course. Like if you've never worked a job and paid into the system and mm-hmm. you try to file for unemployment, you probably won't be accepted. Uh, right, right. Like right. They, they won't accept your claim or if they do, you may get very little money just based off of that. So mm-hmm. it is predicated upon the point that you have actually done. Worked you've put and paid in. Into you've put it. into yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. All right, Maurice. Now, um, as we are wrapping up, anything you want to talk about, promote, plug, anything you want to speak on, any parting words, words of wisdom? I mean, the, <laughs> I'd say the, the biggest things, I mean, there's a couple of, there's a couple of things. One, um, Cultural Algorithms, as I mentioned, that's the company that I co-own with uh, my friend Tori. We are hopefully coming out with our first podcast, I think, possibly early next year, early 2023. We're looking at it like... We've already got the pilot. We've got the first episode. It's just a matter at this point of like design and marketing. So be on the lookout for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can find more information once we have it available at cultalgo.com. C-U-L-T-A-L-G-O.com. Okay. Um, I'm currently working on a book with Gail Anderson and Michelle Washington. Mm-hmm. So that's something that we've kind of been, we've been working on that throughout the pandemic, but it's now at the point where they've both mentioned it. So now I can mention it, <laughs> nice. but we're working on a book that hopefully will be coming out. I, I hope it comes out sometime next year, probably late next year, but we've been working on it, pulling things together. It's going to be about the history of black graphic designers and stuff. So it should be pretty oh, cool. Nice. Right. Um, and then I personally am working on a book about revision path. It's kind of part autobiography, part the story of revision path. And so, I don't know when that's coming out because that's been a journey. So yeah. <laughs> it's something that I'm working on, but uh, I will definitely be able to share more once I'm closer to the finish line. Let's just say I'm like somewhere in the middle with trying to pull everything together. Okay. Keeping busy, sir. Keeping busy. All right. Well, Maurice, pleasure having the show. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your, you know, spreading the word of, of your wisdom and your journey with our audience and uh, just showing folks in the creative field and in all fields, you know, um, that there are multiple opportunities and options on the, in, in this uh, business game. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me once again. Yes, sir. So that's a wrap for this week's episode. We hope you enjoyed our discussion with Maurice. Hopefully it provided you with some value as you navigate through your business journey and personal life. As always, if you have a question you would like us to answer on the show, shoot us a message on any of our social media channels or shoot us an email at questions at businessgrindshow.com. Always don't forget to subscribe and share on Spotify and iTunes. See you again soon. In the meantime, keep grinding. The Business Grind is for entertainment purposes. Opinions expressed are those solely of the host and guests. 
please consult with a professional and exercise discretion before engaging in any business endeavors. I'm out here on the grind. I'm out here on the grind.